0: Josh McDowell once said, rules without relationship leads to rebellion. How many of you have ever heard that statement before? A couple of you. I remember hearing that and reading that as a youth pastor and we went through a study on, I can't even remember which curriculum that came out of, uh, but it's always struck me as very profound. And as I look at scripture, I see that that is the way that God works. He builds relationships with people and then gives them rules. He gives them regulations, stipulations by which to live. But they're always, always, always based on the relationship. And if you take that relationship away and all you have is rules, you're going to get a rebellious heart, a rebellious attitude, and rebellious actions. Now that doesn't excuse the actions, but it does point to something I believe Paul is getting to throughout the book of Ephesians and really throughout all of his letters where he starts With helping us to understand our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And then he transitions into: so this is how you are to live. When I was in college, my wife had a babysitting job. Uh, We were in downtown Chicago and at Moody Bible Institute, and she the babysitting job was, I think, about 12 blocks away or so. And Not the best of ideas for a young lady to be walking around Chicago, especially in the evening, uh, by herself. And so I would escort her. I would walk her to the babysitting job, turn around and walk back to campus, go back, walk all the way back, pick her up and walk her home. Oh, thanks. Now, why? Did I do that because I was just obligated to her? Did I do it... begrudgingly and hating it the whole time. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm no saint, okay? There were many of the nights that she was working. I'm thinking, really? I need to stop my studying. Okay, it was more like I need to stop hanging out with my friends and go and walk her. Okay, I'm not saying like the overflowing abundance of my heart was, yes, I get to walk with her. Some nights, some nights I enjoyed it. But why? Why did I do it? I did it because I loved her. I did it because we had a relationship. And this was important to her. It was a need of hers, and so I went with her. Fast forward many years after our marriage, and my wife is pregnant, and she wants pop tarts. (laughs) That's what she wanted. That was her thing. She wanted—I think it was the maple and brown sugar pop tarts. And there were times, middle of the afternoon, late in the evening. I don't think she ever made me go out in the middle of the night. But we'd be sitting there. Dave, I just—I need pop tarts. I go really pop tarts. But I did it. Why? Because it was a rule? Because she said, as my wife, I need Pop-Tarts? No, because I loved her. There was a relationship there. And I knew that she loved me. And because we were in this relationship, I wanted this for her. This is how it is with us and God. When we separate the rules from the relationship, we miss the whole point. And so open up to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 3 through 14, in a section where Paul is continuing to talk about some standards, dare I even say some rules, for the Christian life. And as I said last week, and I probably will say every week until the end of this series, we cannot forget the whole first part of the book that we've already studied. Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 1 who Christ is as part of God's plan to save us, to bring God the ultimate glory. He goes into chapter 2 and he says, you were dead in your sins, but God has made you alive in Jesus Christ. You've been saved by grace. This is who you are. It's who Christ is. It's who you are. And then he goes into the church as the, the expression of this, the community of faith, the visible expression of who Christ is and his salvation among us. Our relationships matter because they portray this identity in Christ and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now he's taking all of that and saying, because that's who you are, brought from death to life by Christ, because this is who Christ is, our Lord and our Savior, this is how we are to live. So let's jump into verses 3 through 14. Let me read it for us. Uh, I'm reading out of the NIV. Your translation may be a little bit different. Starting in verse 3, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving, for of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person, is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For once you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Once you were, I'm sorry, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have, it, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's walk through this in two parts. And the first thing that Paul emphasizes is the call to be pure. And the second thing that he emphasizes is the call to be light, to shine as a light in this world. Let's start with the idea of purity in verses 3 through 7. He starts with what I'm going to call some big things, some very obvious outward expressions of sin that he is saying these have no place among Christians. Sexual immorality, any kind of impurity or of greed. And he says, according to the NIV, among you there must not be even a hint Yours might say something like, these must not even be named among you. It has the connotation of, we should not even publicly speak of such things. That's how bad they are. They should have no place among the people of God, no place among Christians, no place in the church. That's how awful they are. Now, it's sort of ironic that Paul's writing the church and saying, you shouldn't even speak about this, there shouldn't be a hint of it, and yet, of course, he's going to tell them what they shouldn't be speaking about. These things have to be talked about, but they have to be talked about very carefully. We need to consider these things seriously. Now let's look at the list of things that he talks about quickly. Now, in this service, I see the kids are not present. (laughs) This is a tough passage to prepare for, knowing that you're going to have kids sitting in the service, in the second service, Uh, so pray for me for that. But we're going to talk about some tough stuff here. He starts out with sexual immorality. Throughout Scripture, in general, and we're not going to look at all the instances because we have a lot to cover, but in general, sexual immorality speaks of some form of sex that is outside of marriage. It is something that is outside the bounds that God has given us for the sexual relationship. Let's add in the second thing. Any kind of impurity. This takes it farther So Paul's layering here, okay? So he's starting and saying, look, sex outside of marriage should have no place in the church, should have no place in Christian lives. Then he adds on this concept of any kind of impurity. This also relates in general in Paul's thoughts to the sexual relationship. It broadens it to be anything that is beyond the scope of what God has created the sexual relationship for. Now let's just stop there for a second. This is such a hot-button issue in our, top, our culture right now. And I want to be very, very clear what Scripture is teaching, this Scripture and anything else. Scripture clearly says that for the Christian, sex outside of marriage is wrong. It is impure. We need to teach this to our young people. We need to uphold this in our marriages. We need to uphold this in our homes. We need to teach it as part of our identity in Jesus Christ. People need to know that God's way is better. But we also need to go further. Because I'm guessing if you grew up in the church, you grew up with that message. Our culture has now expanded the sin. And Paul, in this letter alone, and many others, he has also expanded the categories to help us deal with that. Any kind of impurity. This relates to homosexuality. He is clearly in this passage with that phrase and that word saying homosexuality is sin. It is wrong. There is no way to come to God's holy scripture and read it as it speaks and walk away with it and truly believe that God is okay with homosexuality. There's no way you have to come with a preconceived notion that God's word is wrong and misinterpret it, misapply it, twist it. That is the only way to come to Scripture and believe that homosexuality is okay. He says, there must not be sexual immorality or any kind of impurity. And then he adds in, or of greed. And we've talked about this before. This came up a couple weeks ago when he threw that word greed in as well. And it's sort of, Weird. Why, when he's talking about a specific type of sin, why does he throw in greed? And he could be saying this greed, running after money, running after possessions, is just as bad as that. He could be saying that. And and I think that wouldn't abuse the text whatsoever or change my reading of it. But as I read it, what I see Paul doing when he adds greed into these lists He's saying not only do people that are running after these things say God's way is wrong, I'm going to go my own way, but they are never satisfied with how far they go with it. They always want to go farther. All you have to do is look at the past 50 years, maybe even 20 years, maybe even 10 years of American culture and you see that concept right there. One standard after another has fallen One sin after another is upheld not only as okay, but as being good, as being righteous, putting a Christian word on a, a sinful term. Our culture celebrates these things now. There's a greed in running after these sinful expressions. It's tragic. These are things our culture are trying to redefine. But Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and says, They are improper for God's holy people. Why? Because they're bad. You just shouldn't do them. Well, yes, but it's more than that. Because if you think these things are okay or you allow them in your life, what you're saying is you don't understand who Jesus Christ is. You don't understand who you are in Christ. Because if you truly understood those things, if you truly understood that relationship that you have with Christ, you would understand these things are completely out of place with that relationship. It's not just about a rule. It's about a relationship. Throughout the Old Testament, God refers to his people as his holy people. They were to be set apart different from the rest of the world. And through his people in a relationship with him, He would show to the world his character, his nature, and his salvation. They were a living, breathing example of the people that God has created and the people God has saved. So that God could point to his people and say, look at who they are. Look at what I've done. I can do that in your life too. But if God's people live just like the world around them, that whole concept is lost. If we run after the world, what do we have to offer them? Now, I said these are big things. I hope, I believe, in general I'm speaking to a group of people that's nodding their heads in agreement with most of this. But Paul takes it a step farther. And now I'm going to talk about the small things in verse 4. I don't mean small as in unimportant. I mean small as in they slip through easier. Okay? Verse 4, Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Here Paul's talking about a heart that is corrupt and maybe doesn't quite express itself in some sort of outward sexual sins, maybe doesn't flagrantly uh, participate in things that that people would just gasp at. Here he's talking about the offhanded remark, the, the turn of the phrase, the coarse jesting. They're referring to things with maybe a sexual innuendo. Oh, it's okay, I didn't really mean that. It's not that big a deal. How many times do we say that? That's not that big a deal. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 18, the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. This coarse jesting, this coarse joking, this obscene way of speaking is not just a way of talking, it's a heart issue not just a speech issue. And Paul goes on, because we should ask ourselves, so what? Okay, so these things are wrong. Got it. Good. Check. We're making our list of rules. Don't do that. Don't do Okay, I'll do that. But look at why. He talks about in verse 5 the seriousness of idolatry. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ, And of God. What is idolatry? Idolatry is putting anything in the place of God. Okay, we talk about this often because it comes up in Scripture often, often. And maybe we don't talk about it enough. I think we live in this modern world where we think, oh, we've done away with idolatry. That's such a, a, a time in history when people were stupid. They didn't understand. They were bowing down to idols. They were worshiping created things. We don't do that anymore. We have science. We have reason. We don't have idolatry. But look at the context that he's talking about here. He's saying the person who does these things, immoral, impure, greedy person, such a person is an idolater. He's not saying the person that bows down to a fake statue is an idolater. He's saying the person that persists in these things, thinking they're okay, redefining God's rules, redefining the character and nature of God, that person is an idolater. Why? Because idolatry is putting something in the place of God. And when we call something pure that God has called impure, we put ourselves in the place of God. When we call something right that God has called wrong, we put ourselves in the place of God. When God says, this is out of line with my character, my nature, my holiness, my righteousness, my plan, my salvation for you, and we say, yeah, but we're arguing with God. We're defending something that God has clearly called wrong. And Paul writes of these people that they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. That is very strong language for saying they look like Christians. They say they're Christians. They are not even saved by Jesus Christ. Hear the seriousness of this passage. Someone who clings to their sin and says it's right, it's good, I'm going to celebrate it. That person doesn't know Jesus as their Savior. Now, let's be very careful here. There are Christians that struggle with sin. In fact, I would say all Christians struggle with sin. Some even struggle with these sins in particular. Paul is not saying if your struggle in your life with sin is in the realm of sexuality or is in the realm of something that has a sexual nature to it, that you cannot be a Christian. That's not what he's saying. Are you hearing me? What he is saying is if in your struggle you are saying that what you want to run after is okay. There's nothing wrong with it. And you are looking at God's word that says it's wrong and you're saying I'm right and God is wrong. You have put yourself in the place of God. You are committing idolatry and you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior. That's a scary and tragic place to be. But Paul's not done yet. Look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Our culture has a lot of reasons right now. We are bombarded constantly in the media for why the redefinition of human sexuality and even human gender is right and good and just. Those words are, according to the standard of God's holy word, empty. Do not be deceived. Popular opinion has never determined the truthfulness of God's word. It never will. Okay? As Christians, we cannot give in to these things. And then he goes on, For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. There are Christians that say that out of love, We're going to change God's standard. We're going to accept things in the church that the Bible says not to accept. We want to love those people. Yes, we do want to love them. Yes, we want to accept them into the church, into our fellowship to get to know them and to share the gospel with them. But we can never say that what they're doing is okay. Any more than I can look at any sin in my own life and say it's okay. But churches out of love, they say, so-called, are changing the foundations of the faith, and accepting these things in. I believe according to this verse right here that this is not love. To change God's standard is not love. It is hatred. Because what you are doing to somebody is keeping them under the wrath of God. They're dead in their sin. And when we call that sin okay, they have no reason to turn to Christ for salvation. That's like the child that's just constantly hurting themselves, maybe shoving something down their throats that they think is food and it's actually poison. You say, well, I love you. If that makes you happy, I'm just going to let it go. That's not love. That's hate. A parent that does that should be locked up. The child should be taken away because they're abusing their child by not stepping in. And yet our culture steps back and says, praise God, look at these Christians accepting these things in the church. It's not love. Love is looking at the sinner and saying, I love you. I know you're struggling. I struggle too. Maybe your struggle is different than mine. But we all struggle. Let me point you to Jesus Christ. Can he change you? Yes. Does he do it all at once? No. It's a long, hard struggle. But let's walk that road together. That's love. We cannot be deceived. And then he says, therefore, do not be partners with them. Paul has said elsewhere, he's not talking about us leaving the world, forming our little holy enclaves, our holy huddles, and never interacting with the world. That wasn't the way Paul lived his life. He went into the cities, he went into the marketplaces, he went into the places of sexual, or, I'm sorry, um, secular, <laughs> secular philosophy, and places that they debated, reason. And he went there, because he knew the gospel was relevant there. He didn't just close himself in a room and say, well, I've got to maintain my holiness. And he's not telling us to do that either. So what is he telling us to do? He's saying those Christians who redefine these things, those Christians that are saying these things are okay, those are the ones we must have nothing to do with. That's hard. That's hard. And we talk about not wanting to judge. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I hear this so often. Well, who am I to judge? Who am I to judge? Paul talks about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. Paul's saying that's not what I'm talking about. He says, verse 11, But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Verse 12, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. As Christians, we have hidden behind this notion that we are not to judge and therefore allowed every sort of sin to come into the church. And So I can't judge you. We need to return to a standard of God's holy word that holds up his truth to our lives and to our brothers and sisters in Christ and said, hey, let's look here together. If that brings you under judgment, that might be the very grace of God at this moment in your life to turn you back to him. Let's go on. We are to be pure. We are also to be light. Look at verses 8 through 14. In verse 8, and I, I caught myself even in my reading of this because it's so important. For you were once darkness, but now you are in the Lord. You are light in the Lord. I messed it up again. The key here that Paul's talking about, actually what he's not talking about is a change of environment. He's not saying you were in the dark and praise God, he's plucked you out of that and now you're in the light and you can see. Now, other places talk about that. I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's fascinating what he's saying here. You weren't just in the dark, you were darkness just as light shines forth light, the way Paul is talking about it here is that darkness shines forth darkness. Now, I know the scientific among us might want to say, wait a minute, Dave, I mean, that's not true. Darkness doesn't actually shine. Just the absence of light. We have a phrase, especially in the northern climates, seasonal affective disorder. Right? It's a real thing. I've struggled with it at times. In fact, just this past year, I got one of those lights and I set it up on my desk just to kind of bombard my eyeballs with light. And because those dark winter months, you get sad. It's no uh, accident that the acronym there is S.A.D., Seasonal Affective Disorder. Why? Because darkness does shine darkness. There is an effect of it. When you're around darkness constantly, when that's all you're seeing, it seeps into your soul and you can get sad. And Paul's talking about this in a spiritual sense. He says, You were darkness, but look at the radical change. You've not just been brought into the light, you have been changed from being darkness to now being light. What a change! The change of environment is not enough. We need a change of heart. And that's what happens in Jesus Christ. We might look at these things in the world and say, This is impossible. There's no way to overcome these things. The laws are changing so quickly. God's truth is more powerful. The gospel is more powerful. Paul is writing to people that he clearly says, you used to be like this, but now you're in Christ. Everything has changed. And then he says we need to live like it. At the end of verse 8, live as children of Light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. We need to know who we are in Jesus Christ. And then we need to seek to live that out. And that's where the standards of Scripture come in. To say, Christ, I love you. I want to know who you are. I want to know your righteousness, your holiness. I want to know what pleases you because I love you. And because I love you, I want to live the way you want me to live. Because I trust that your way is best. Your way is better than my best ideas and my best intentions. Goodness, righteousness, and truth are not some random things. They are the very character and nature of God. So he's saying, Christian, if you've truly been saved by Christ, brought from darkness to light, changed from darkness to life, living in fellowship with the presence of God in your life, these things must be evident. Don't settle for anything less. He says, stay away from the deeds of darkness. Have nothing to do with them. Stay away from them. Don't get even close. Don't tinker with them. Don't fiddle with them. Don't think it's no big deal. I can get this close, but I won't go this far. Stay away. Could you imagine my wife, if I went to her and said, well, I I would never have a relationship with another woman, but I'll get really close. But I still love you. How's she going to take that? She would say, no way. Stay away from that. And yet we do it to God all the time. Oh, God, it's just a little bit. I can stop any time. God God's saying, no, 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 I've got something so far better for you. And then he says, but expose them. And I want to go into the next section because he really picks up on that. At the end of verse 11, he says, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why, or this is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Light. God's truth through his word, but God's truth also through our lives, exposes sin. How often do people see a Christian and and hear us talking about truth and say, oh, well, you're just condemning me. When truth is clearly declared, proclaimed, and exhibited in our lives, it is often felt and experienced by others as a condemnation. That's not our fault. Now, it is our fault if we're being brash and mean and rude about it. But if we are living for Christ, standing up for His righteousness, and they don't like it, that's not our problem. Truth hurts. Truth points out error. When we live out God's truth, others will see their own error. And this is not always a pleasant experience. We don't like to be told we're wrong. Paul's not talking about going around trying to expose sin in the world. That would be out of line with what he's talking about here. Sometimes as Christians, we wear this banner that it's our mission in life to point fingers at the world. Paul has talked about that even in 1 Corinthians where we read, who are we to judge those outside the church? Now, I'm not saying let it go, it's no big deal, just don't say anything. There are appropriate, realistic ways to take the truth of God to the world. It's good to vote your conscience. It's good to write letters to congressmen. It's good to stand up for truth in the various ways. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is the way to expose sin in the world is to live such a righteous life that the light of Christ shines through you. There are a lot of Christians that are eager to expose sin in the world by pointing fingers and yet incredibly slow to live a holy, righteous life on their own. It's a lot easier to point fingers. A lot easier. Verse 13 is an interesting passage. NIV has everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. The Greek phrase here, the Greek terminology is very, very difficult but let me just help you to understand what Paul is saying as far as I understand it. He's saying two things. Light makes things visible. That one's pretty obvious. But the second one is not as obvious. Those things that are made visible by light become light. They now begin to shine. He's taking the truth of the gospel and he's applying it. He's saying when we live for the light of Christ, when people hear and experience the gospel from our lives, from our community as the church, they can be changed. You want to make the world a better place? You want to shine the light of Jesus in the world? You want to change culture? Live for Jesus Christ. Share the gospel and watch what the gospel does in people's lives. Because the gospel can change the greatest darkness into the most brilliant light for Jesus. That's what we trust in. And then he ends with verse 15 or 14, which is probably an early Christian hymn. Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It ties all of this into the truth of the resurrection. You were dead in your sin. You're now alive in Christ. Live it. That's what all of this comes to. Live out the truth of what you say you believe. This is my cell phone. I love my cell phone. Cell phones are often advertised as having great screens, right, really nice, bright, crisp screen. And you can go in the store and compare them side by side and pick the one you want. I like my cell phone because it has a nice, bright screen. I actually keep, you probably can't see it, but I keep my brightness pretty low. I don't need it that bright. I walk around and go, wow, look at this light. This is great. I can see that so clearly. A lot of times we look at the world and we look at God's standard and we say, well, I know a good person. And they're a light in the world. I'm Sure, they don't know Jesus, but they're a light in the world. Man, they're shining. It's great. Do you know what happens when I take this bright screen out into the sunlight? I can't see a thing. Nothing. Literally, the screen almost looks black because the sun is so much brighter. When light shines in a dim place, it doesn't take a lot of light to look good. When we live our lives in the dimness of this world or when we're looking at other people's lives in the darkness of this world and we go, wow, they're a great person. Look at what we're comparing them to. But when the light of Jesus Christ shines, it's seen to be what it really is. It's nothing. It's just darkness. When seen in the infinitely bright, majestic, piercing light of the glory of God, Our so-called deeds are just darkness. But there's something else that happens when I have my phone in the sun and it gets all black and I can't see anything on it. All my text disappears. All the graphics disappear. Can't see anything. Do you know what I can see? The blinding rays of the sun reflected off the screen right into my eyeballs. And you know what? It hurts. That's what Christ does with us. He comes into our lives. And in the brightness of His glory, He shines in and He turns our darkness to His light. We don't shine our light in the world, we reflect the very light of Jesus Christ. That's what the world needs to see. The Christian life is not first about rules, it's about relationship. But that relationship with Christ will reflect in our lives, in our actions. In our words, in the big things, in the little things, in how we shine. The world needs to see Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I think this passage, as so often with your word, is so fitting in our culture and our lives today. There's so much temptation as Christians to just give in on some of these things. We're ridiculed in public, we're ridiculed in the media as being people consumed with hatred. And Father, sometimes those accusations are just. Some of our so-called brothers and sisters in Christ are acting in ways unbecoming in their Christianity and they're dealing with these difficulties in the culture. And for that, I ask for forgiveness. And I pray your change in their hearts and the way they engage. But God, we must not change the truth as we engage. You clearly say things that are right and are wrong in our relationship with You. And Father, we don't want to put ourselves in Your place and by doing so commit idolatry as we sit in judgment on Your Holy Word and redefine it and change it to fit what we think we want or what the culture will accept. Because ultimately what the culture needs is not our misinterpretation or misguided notions. They need Jesus Christ, pure holy, righteous, the Savior of the world. May that be what's reflected in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.